The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. If you would please turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 will begin in the 25th verse. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor is thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, the Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he depended, he took out two pence and gave, to the, and gave them to the host and said unto him, I take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Oh, now, this, this section of Scripture is commonly referred to as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that's what I want to look at today. But I also want to kind of back up and kind of consider the context in which it sits. Because it comes in the part of a context which is rather interesting. So, the chapter begins with Jesus sending out the 70 other disciples. So, in the previous chapter, he had sent out the 12 apostles to go and preach. And so, in, and so in the beginning of this chapter, he sent out other 70 disciples, that is, 70 other disciples than them, to go and to preach his word. And so in verse 17, it talks about how they returned. It says that the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So when they came back, they were rejoicing that the devils were made subject to them because this, of course, was a very amazing thing to them. And Jesus says, well, yeah. You know, he says, look, while you were out there preaching, I beheld Satan uh, a falling from heaven. So he's been uh, thrown out of his great seat of power by the coming of Jesus into the world and by the preaching of the gospel in the world, which tells us something, I think, very important about the preaching of the gospel. And I don't want to get sidetracked on this, but just a quick note that when the gospel came into the world, it changed the whole course of human history. If you study the ancient world before 
the advent of Jesus and the world since that time, it has completely changed everything, everywhere it goes. It casts down the devil from his great seat of power. And he says, look, I'm going to give you power over, uh, I'm going to give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing's going to hurt you. But he says, notwithstanding, don't rejoice in that, but rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. And, and here's something that Jesus will always do in the Bible. You'll always see this, where he puts as the highest thing your place in heaven. Just like when he healed the man uh, who, you know, when they, when, they, when they brought the man to Jesus who was, who was uh, uh, it said there that he was, he was sick of the palsy, which means he was paralyzed. The Lord didn't initially heal him. The Lord initially forgave his sins because really that's the most important thing in the eyes of Jesus Christ, and it should be the most important thing in our eyes. So the greatest thing is not some ability the Lord may grant to you here in this life, but the greatest thing is to have your names written in heaven. If your names are written in heaven, then everything is going to be okay eventually. Things might be tough here in this life, but that's just for a short time. But your names written in heaven is the most precious thing that could ever happen to you. And so he says, you need to rejoice in the fact that your names are written in heaven. Then it says this, in that hour, this is verse 21, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. And so at, at that time, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and he thanked the Father for the way that the Father has ordered things. He's ordered things such that in many cases it is the common man whom he refers to as babes who hear the word of God with joys. Mark wrote in Mark 12, 37 that the common people heard Jesus gladly. Meanwhile, these things are hidden from the wise and prudent. And why are they hidden from the wise and prudent? Well, I think there's a couple things to think about there. One is what the Apostle Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 over there where he says, you know, he says, Therefore you see your calling, brethren, have there not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, mighty, might, not many noble are called. So many of them are not born again, which would, of course, hide the truth from you. But I think beyond that point, there's this also, which is really, which is really kind of what I wanted to grab this, is when we get over here to this lawyer that asked Jesus' question, which brings about this parable, is that in oftentimes it seems like those who are wise and prudent are blocked from the truth for a few reasons that are kind of interesting. One is, I think there's that tendency of knowledge to puff up. Now, Jesus here is not speaking against gaining knowledge or being educated because Jesus created the world. He created everything that we see, and of course, even things we cannot see. He created everything. And the world naturally makes us curious. He wouldn't have created that if he didn't want us to learn about it. So he's not here speaking against education, but the tendency in men is, as they gain knowledge, is to be puffed up, to become arrogant in their knowledge, which can really block us from understanding the truth. As Jesus would say about the Pharisees, they strained in a gnat and swallowed camels. So they would become very arrogant and sort of zoom in on these things and become very highbrow about them. And that was a block to the simple truth of God's word. I think it's important for us as we learn and gain more, and I think we should learn and gain more knowledge. I think we should constantly be trying to learn new things and learn more things, not only about the Word of God, but about what God has made. And, I mean, there's so many areas 
where, where I think we can learn more and gain more. I think those are good things to do. But I think as we do them, we always need to bear in mind, bear in mind that simplicity that, 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 that Lord really has revealed himself in and keep that always in mind. Not become puffed up, but rather remember that these are things for simple folk like us, you know. I was kind of reminded of that this week when these, uh, you know, this, uh, these highbrows had really sort of zoomed in on this verse and they were kind of, kind of missing the forest for the trees, if you will. They were so... You know, they were so caught up in their knowledge, they missed just the simplicity of the verse. And so we always have to bear that in mind. So Jesus thanks the Father that he's hid these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes. He says, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Then he says this, all things are delivered to me of my Father. And no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. Now look at this next part. It says he turned him unto the disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which, which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. And that is a really amazing statement. He said, you guys, he's, they're talking to the disciples there. He says, you guys, you guys, you have seen things that many people before you desired to see and could not see. So if you think about things like, you, you know, you think about great kings like King David and King Solomon, who would have loved to see the things that the apostles were blessed to see, and yet they did not live to see them, did they? Or the prophets, you know, the apostle Peter tells us that the prophets were searching the things that they wrote because they desired to see, they desired to, to gain more understanding, and, and yet they... Those things were beyond their lifetimes. and But he says, you are blessed to see these things. You're blessed to hear these things and how wonderful that is. And you and I, even though we haven't seen with our eyes, with our natural eyes and heard with our natural ears, the things that they did, yet we have their testimony. And we're blessed to see them with an eye of faith and to hear them with ears that the Lord has given us to hear and to be blessed by them likewise. And so the Lord would say to us that you're incredibly blessed. In fact... You know, the time now after the coming, after the first coming of Jesus is the best time to live in the entire history of the world. Uh, in fact, I think right now is the best time to live in the entire history of the world. You're blessed, greatly blessed, to be able to have God's Word, have the truth of the Gospel, and to be blessed to see and to hear these wonderful things that God has written, and to have that great knowledge that we have, that great hope that we have in Jesus Christ, which says you're blessed to understand these things. Now, he goes on then, and we kind of pick up where we started. Here comes this lawyer, and this lawyer comes to him, and he begins to tempt him. That is, he begins to put him to the test. This is, you know, so you know, here's a, here's a guy that kind of grew up in the rabbinical system of learning and and asking questions, you know, kind of a dialogue. And 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 so what they would do is they would test each other. They would put each other to the test. So he has this question for Jesus. He says, "Look, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" And that's an interesting question because it's not the only man that ever asked that question. In fact, just a few chapters later, I think it's Luke 18, we have the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and asks the very same question. You know, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And, and of course, that, that is, we understand that's a really a wrong-headed question. That, that's, that's, that's a question that begins from the wrong standpoint, right? Because, you know, it, it, it suggests that in, eternal life is something that you earn, something that you get 
in exchange for doing something to get it, as opposed to the way we understand eternal life, which is it is a free gift. It's a gift given unconditionally to the receiver of the gift. It is just given by grace. It is freely, without any condition whatsoever, without any merit whatsoever. We're just frankly given it, uh, uh, you know, by the grace of God. So he asked, well, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You, you know, tell me, tell me what to do. And you're really sort of kind of laying a trap for him. And so the Lord answers by saying, well, what's written in the law? You know, how, how do you read the law? What, what does the law say? Because, of course, that's really what they trusted in. They trusted in the law. Well, what does the law say about this? And he says, well, here's what the law says. It says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And I shall love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, what he's doing here is he's quoting from two sections of Scripture. He's, he's quoting from uh, the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, cha- you know, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and also from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And this is a really neat question and answer because when, when, he, you know, when, he, when he asked the question, we said this is a question asked on other occasions, and it really it shows kind of the viewpoint. And... and you know, if we kind of think about this guy and his learning, he's, he's learned so much and he's kind of come to this place where he's kind of locked in this system. And so he looks at it from this standpoint, that you've got to do something in order to gain everlasting life, that, 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 that this is something that is merited. It's merited either by, you know, where you, either, you know, either by your genealogy or where you came from or, or moreover by your works, what you do in keeping the law and gaining righteousness by the law. This is the viewpoint that he has. And, and what he does not have any viewpoint of is he does not have any viewpoint that he's not worthy of anything, and so he needs the grace of God to give him everything. He doesn't have that in his viewpoint at all. And, and you know, that's a big difference between him and the apostles of Jesus Christ. While the apostles certainly did not understand everything at this point in time before the Lord opened up their understanding, yet they understood their own unworthiness. They understood that they weren't worthy. In fact, uh, uh, just, a, just a few chapters back, Luke chapter 5, the apostle Peter falls down at the knees of Jesus and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So he recognizes his own unworthiness even to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that's kind of what we're getting at, is you have to start from that, that standpoint. And as long as we stay in that standpoint of recognizing that we aren't worthy of anything good from the hand of God, then we'll always be on good ground. You know, then you can learn as much as you want to learn, and you can always stay humble because you recognize. You know, you think about that just a minute. You know, learning more should humble us, really. It's kind of, it just kind of speaks to man's inherent sinfulness that he becomes puffed up in his knowledge because the more you learn... You know, when you learn something new, you did, this is something you didn't know before you learned it. So you have to look back and say, well, I didn't used to know that. <laughs> so that should humble me to know that I was carrying on with this and I did not realize that. There's a lot of times I read the Bible and, and I'll just go, duh, you know. And, and you wonder, how could I not have seen that before? That should bring us to a great point of humility and show us our own limitations. But also, when you learn, you know, the more you learn, it should show you the more there is left to learn. 
the more I learn, the more I realize how much there is left to learn. And you come to the conclusion, well, I'm not going to be able to learn it all. I'm going to, I'm going to give it the best shot, but I'm not going to be able to learn everything there is to learn. There's just too much. So learning should humble us, but we can learn as much as we want as long as we stay in that basic frame of mind that says, I'm not worthy of anything. And this is why so many of the Pharisees really stumbled at Jesus. Meanwhile, the harlots and the publicans and these kinds of folks, they heard him gladly because they understood their own unworthiness. In fact, on another occasion, Jesus was in the house of a man named Simon the Pharisee, and this woman comes in there who was a notorious sinner, and she begins to wash his feet with her tears and to dry them with the hairs of her head and anoint them with ointment. And, you know, that old, that old, that old Pharisee was greatly offended. He was wondering, why can't Jesus figure out who this woman is if he's such a great prophet? And the Lord explains to him, well, the reason she's doing all this is because she knows how, how notorious of a sinner she is, and she knows that she's been forgiven of that, and so she loves greatly on that account. And the lesson there is not to go become a great sinner so that you can, you can have great love in your heart. The lesson is to realize how great a sinner you are and that you've been forgiven by the hand of God. And as long as we stay on that ground, then you're, in, then you're on good ground to begin with, you see. But this guy says, well, I, you know, there's something that I must be able to do to inherit eternal life. And so he comes to the Lord. The Lord says, well, what does the law say? And he says, well, he's, he's, he's just like looking at it, you know, with big eyes. You know, that's like a, that's, you know, that's, that's like a softball just right, over, right out of the plate. That's an easy one to answer. You know, I've been ready for that one my whole life. I know exactly what the answer is. The answer is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Everybody knows that. You're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, everybody knows that. That's exactly what the law says. And what's so interesting about that, again, is that this is an answer that you see over and over again in the New Testament to this kind of a question. For instance, I, I mentioned the rich young ruler that's in chapter 18 of Luke. It's also recorded in chapter 19 of Matthew and chapter 10 of Mark. And when the, you know, you know, the man comes up to Jesus to ask this question, and Jesus says, well, you know the commandments, and he begins to list them off. You know, he says, you know, you know, that you know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not, you know, that thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I mean, he's doing the same thing. He's reading off these two commandments to him. You know, and the guy says, of course, you know, all these things have I kept from my youth up. But he's giving him that answer, that answer. This is what the law had said. And not only that, but in Matthew 22 and also Mark 12, uh, you know, the Lord Jesus was there teaching in the temple. And he had three waves of men that came to him to try to trip him up. The first were the Herodians, and they asked about giving tribute to Caesar. And the next came the Sadducees asking about the resurrection. And finally comes this lawyer from among the Pharisees, maybe the same kind of a guy, who asked him the same question. You know, what, what is the great commandment of the law? What is it? And so the Lord answers by quoting these very commandments right here. He begins quoting in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, right on to verse 5. And then, he, and then he also quotes Leviticus 19 and 18, you know. And then, you know, he, you know, he says, you know, so here's the, here's, the, here's, the, here's the great commandment of the law. Here's the first of all the commandments. It is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. He says, that's the first command. He says, the second is like it. That's to love thy neighbor as thyself. But then he says this. 
He says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And that is an interesting statement because what he's saying is, is while these things are recorded in the law, these are two principles that are greater than the law. These are two principles upon which the entire law hangs. That is love, love to God and love to neighbor. On these two principles, on these two commandments, says Jesus, all the law and the prophets hang. So while those are codified, they're written in the law. Jesus says they're greater than the law because the law is built on those two commandments. And, you know, there's several other things you'll find that go right along with that. In fact, over in uh, Romans chapter 13, I think it's about verse 8, the apostle writes this. He says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. Then he goes on to say, uh, you know, he says for this, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. He says, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in one word, namely, or in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Then he, then, he, then he explains, he says, love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So the fulfillment of the law is love. So he sort of sums it all up that way, you know. So you don't know any, any man anything except to love one another. But of course, that's everything because love does not work any ill to his neighbor. Therefore, Love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, I want you to think about that. I want to bring up two commandments from the law right quick because and, and, we're going to bring these up again in just a minute. So over in Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5, I think it is, we, 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 we find these two commandments which are, which are right next to each other and really similar to each other. The first one says, you know, if you see your enemy's ass or his ox going astray, you know, that you are to return it. And the second one says that if you see the ass of him that hateth thee lying under his burden... And would forbear to help. He says, thou shalt surely help him. In other words, if you see somebody who hates your guts and, and you know, their, their beast of burden is greatly struggling and you would just say, well, I'm not really want to help him. He says, no, you're to go help him anyway. Now, of course, what's the basis of those two laws? Well, love, right? Love to the neighbor. Now, if you kind of think about it, if you kind of think about it, of course, these commandments are written by God and so they're not superfluous. But if you really kind of think about it, if you're loving your neighbor, why would you need a commandment to tell you to do those kinds of things, right? So, of course, the ass and the ox, these are things that are, that are really uh, valuable to them. Their livelihoods were based on those things. It's like if you went up to a logger and you said, you know, hey, your, your, you know, your equipment's on fire. You know, your trucks and your, and your skidders are on fire. You know, that's, that's his livelihood, you know, this is the way it was with him. So here's something very valuable to them. And he says, if you see these going astray, you bring them back. And, 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 and if you see somebody that hates you, you help them anyway, because this is right, because it's based upon love. But of course, God did have to write that in there because they didn't quite grasp that point. But you see the point I'm getting at. That's what Paul is getting at, is, is if you're loving your neighbor, this is the fulfilling of the law. Because the law was based on those principles, that principle of love, love to God and love to neighbor. So you can sum it all up in love. And if you're loving your neighbor, you don't need a commandment to go tell you to go do X, Y, or Z. You're just going to do it because it is right, you see. Now, so, so, that, so the man answers, he answers this question. And this is indeed the summation of the law. 
But he answers this question like, well, that's, that's what the law says. And so Jesus says, well, that's right. So do this and, and, and you'll live. And, and, and you might get a little confused by that. But, you know, there's a sense in which he's, that, that's exactly true. If, if you could gain righteousness by the law, if it was possible to gain righteousness by the law and merit heaven by the law of God, then the way to do it would be love because love is the fulfilling of the law. You know, that would be the way to do it. In fact, uh, the one who is giving this command is the one who fulfilled the law on our behalf. How did he do it? Love, that's how he did it. Love to uh, the other two persons of the Godhead, the Father and the Holy Ghost, by keeping the commandments of God. And then love to neighbor by doing good everywhere, even to those who were his enemies, did he do good. Uh, so, yes, so th- that's how he fulfilled the law of God. So Jesus is exactly right. What the man doesn't understand, though, is that he has not kept the law. He has not loved the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his mind, with all his soul, and with all his strength, and neither have we. You know, you know this is why Jesus had to tell us that you can't serve two masters. Because while Jesus never, when he was here on the earth, he never served anything other than his Father in heaven. You and I can't say that, you know. We have, there, you know, there have been times we served ourselves or we served somebody else's, you know, somebody else's sinfulness. There are times we have not loved the Lord. And really, you know, I wonder if even, when, if, even at those times where I was striving to love the Lord and I was being obedient to him, if I really loved him, with everything that I have, probably not. Uh, and certainly, loving our neighbors ourselves, there have been times we have we have not done what we should have done toward others. So he's missing a you know he's kind of missing the fact that he has not kept that law of God. He's also missing the fact that he's violated the law of God, and so he is a debtor. He is a debtor. He is indebted on the other side. So he has not met the righteous requirements of the law, and he has incurred debt to guilt. And, you know, that concept of guilt is something that was really missing from that rabbinical system, really missing from the Jewish thought system as it was at that time, that concept of guilt. And it's so very important for us to understand that we incurred guilt we could not pay. We could not meet the righteous requirements of the law on the one hand. But on the other hand, we also had guilt because we violated God's law. And both of those things had to be taken care of, and they were both taken care of by Jesus Christ. But anyway, so, so you know, when, when the Lord tells him this, that's exactly how it should work if man could gain righteousness. This is the way to do it. But look at, look at what it says next. He says, but he, that is the Lord, he willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You know, so he wants to justify himself. That is, he wants to show that his system is right. And so he says, well, you know, Lord, who's my neighbor? And, you know, that, that whole question is wrong-headed, as we'll see. It begins from the wrong standpoint. And the Lord's going to kind of turn that question around. But, but kind of think about what comes after that question. What's kind of interesting about this is over in, over in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, that, that text that has that command to love neighbor and self, it begins this way. It, it says over there that... that that thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
I am the Lord. So you can kind of see where they ended up with this idea that a neighbor is a Jew. They would probably say a neighbor is a Jew I like, but they would certainly say a neighbor is a Jew, and they probably got it from that concept. And you know what they would do is they would go back to our verse, our two laws from Exodus 23 we just looked at a while ago about helping your neighbor, and they would look at those verses and they would say, okay, well, the person who hates me, well, that's, that, that, that would exclude the Gentile. It's got to be a Jew. You know? So they would exclude those things from their interpretation of the law so they didn't have to do these things toward anybody they didn't want to do them toward. So they sort of put a parameter around God's word, and then they said, well, I've kept it within these parameters that I have created. And that's what the guy does here. He says, well, you know, who's, who's my neighbor? You know, to whom do I really have to do this? And we have to watch that one very, very closely, that we don't sort of put our own parameters around God's word and then kind of operate within that and then go, well, look, I'm doing what God said. But, well, no, we're not. <laughs> we're not at all. And we really have to be careful with it with regard to this particular concept because we have a tendency to become respecters of persons as opposed to doing what is right all the time. And, you know, that's a problem that they really had with Jesus, isn't it? Is the fact that Jesus was no respecter of persons, that he's over here eating with the publicans and the Pharisees. And he walks up to, he walks up to Matthew, you know, the guy that wrote the Gospel of Matthew was a publican. He was sitting at his desk doing his job. And let me, tell you what, what, let me tell you what those guys did. The way that Rome did taxes is they didn't have an IRS. They contracted it out. So you would have guys who bid on a contract with the central government. And then if they, if they made more money extracting that from the people, they got to keep the difference between what they bid and what they made. So you can see how this was an overbearing system. That's what, that's what Matthew was. The Lord came up and called him. And Matthew left that and began to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus called him in the first place is amazing. But then Matthew made this big feast at his house that he got all of his publican friends to come over. And Jesus was eating and drinking in the midst of all these folks. And the Pharisees looked and said, you can't do that. They always had a problem with the fact that Jesus was no respecter of persons. Now, Jesus did not justify any man in his sinfulness. But Jesus understood that all men were sinners. And so he delighted in repentance. He delighted in turning away from sin. But he didn't look on the outward appearance and say, oh, you know, here's a Pharisee uh, who looks righteous. That mattered not at all, friends. Or look at the publican and say, well, he's lived a bad life. Well, they both lived a bad life, you know. They're both sinners. And so, you know, this guy says, well, who's my neighbor? And, and so the Lord begins to teach this parable to sort of combat that thinking. And in this parable, he talks about how, in verse 30, this certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves. And, of course, this was a very notorious road, a very dangerous road. And so the guy's traveling on this road. He falls among thieves. And what do the thieves do? Well, of course, they take away his clothes because that was very valuable in that day and age. They take away his clothes. They beat him. You're going to say wounded him. They laid many stripes on him. And then they, they left, and when they left, they left him half dead. That is, they left him as he was, which was really severely injured. They just left him to sort of let nature take its course. Well, then he goes on to talk about how, by chance, there came down a priest. You know, the priest came that way, and the priest sees the man, and he just passes by on the other side. And so here comes a Levite. 
Likewise, you know, so here comes a Levite. The Levite comes that way and he sees the man and he also passes by on the other side. And you say, well, what's, what's the point? Well, the priests and the Levites, these are the ministers under the law, okay? So these are kind of the, you know, the, you know, the corresponding to gospel interested today under the New Testament. These were the ministers under the law. Of course, the priests, these are the ones who offered the great sacrifices there in the temple. The Levites were, the, were, were those who assisted them and actually, actually, you know, actually, actually took care of the facility of the temple and all those things. So these were the ministers under the old covenant. This is who they were, okay? And so these guys come along, they see the man, and they forbear to help him. They don't do what they should have done and help the man. You know, you can kind of see how they begin to wonder, well, what, what, you know, who is this guy? You know, where did he come from? And what's he done in his life? You know, I don't want to defile myself by going and touching him. He may die, you know, and, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, well, you know, maybe he, you know, you know, maybe he's lying there because he's a great notorious sinner. You can begin to really imagine all the things that are running through their minds. But, of course, these are all wrong things to be running through the mind, okay? But then he says, in verse 33, it says, but a certain Samaritan, and, you know, the, 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 way, this, the way this verse is worded emphasizes the fact that this was a Samaritan. And we need to understand why that's significant, because the Samaritans were looked down upon by the Jews. In fact, in John 4, it tells us over there that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans, you know. And by the way, talk about Jesus not caring about respect of persons. Remember, on, on that occasion in John 4, Jesus and his disciples were, were, were going from Judea in the south back up to Galilee in the north, and so they passed through Samaria, and they they stopped there by a town called Sychar where was a well that, jo- that Jacob had dug and given to his son Joseph there. And, and, and Jesus is sitting on this well, tired in his journey, and he sends the disciples away into town to go get food. And a Samaritan woman comes up there. First of all, she's a Samaritan. Secondly, you know, she's going to have the best reputation in the world. But the Lord asked her to give him something to drink. And she was just shocked that the Lord even addressed her, much less asked her for something to drink. And when the disciples came back, they were shocked that Jesus was conversing with this Samaritan woman because this was a social no-no. But Jesus didn't care about the ways of men, number one, nor did he, nor was he a respecter of persons, number two. In fact, this was one of his little sheep, and that's the thing that mattered the most to him. But in, in any case, uh, so here's a Samaritan, and the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. But this Samaritan, when he comes along, and he... he as, as he's in his journey, and look, he's got some business to do, as we're going to find out. He's, he's not just strolling along with nothing to do. He's got things to do. But as he strolls along, he sees the man laying there. And the Bible says here that he was moved with compassion toward him. And that's a beautiful word. And, and, I, and I hope to get more on that in just a little bit. But it says there that he, was, he, had, he had compassion on him. He was moved with compassion toward him. And so he goes to him. He, he's not saying, well, where did this guy come from and who is he and blah, 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 blah. But he just sees a man who needs help. And so he goes to him and he binds up his wounds and he pours in oil and wine. These are, you know, you know these are things that would have, that would have aided the wound and, and, of course, driven off infection and things like that that they had in those days. And then uh, not only does he do that, he puts him on his own beast and he takes him to an end, and he cares for him. 
And then the next day, he has to keep going because he's got stuff to do. But he goes and he gives the owner, you know, you know, you know, the guy that runs the inn, he gives him two pence. Now, we need to understand what that means. A, pen, a, a penny was a fair day's wage in the New Testament. You find that in Matthew chapter 20. So he gave him two days' wages to care for the man. And he says, look, if you have to spend more than that, when I come back, I'll settle up. I'll repay the all. And so here's, here's what the Samaritan does. And you also notice that I don't know if the, guy was, if the guy was conscious or not, but if he's a Jew, he wasn't going, well, hang on, you Samaritan. You can't touch me. It's kind of funny how all those little silly things that men come up with go out the window, or they should go out the window, in the face of what is really, truly important. What's really and truly important is life and death and spiritual welfare, eternity. These are, these are the things that are truly important. And a lot of the things that men think are important are really quite silly uh, by comparison. Well, so, he, so he, here's kind of the end of the parable. And then, then the, Lord, the Lord does something he likes to do a lot. And that is he asks the guy, he says, you know, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him that fell among thieves. You know, the Lord could have just told him the point of the parable, but the Lord always likes to ask questions because it kind of stirs the mind up and makes you think. And also, the guy's got to answer himself. He's not going to be able to weasel out of it. So he asked him, he says, well, who was neighbor to him that fell among thieves? But notice his question. You know, the, you know, the man's question to Jesus was, who's my neighbor? Well, the Lord doesn't answer that question. The Lord instead turns the question around and says, well, to who, who was a neighbor to this guy? And really, the question isn't, who's my neighbor? The question is, to whom are you a neighbor? That's really the question that the Lord wanted to ask. Well, who was neighbor to this guy who fell among thieves? And we know the answer to that. That's obvious. I mean, there's no wiggle room here at all. In fact, the guy says, well, you know, he that showed mercy on him. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. He didn't say the Samaritan. <laughs> He just couldn't quite bring himself to say the Samaritan guy was because they just had such a problem with the Samaritans. But I still like his answer, though, the one who showed mercy on him. And you remember the guy, he had, he, he had compassion on him, didn't he? He had mercy on him. And, you know, that's, that's such an important, important, important thing, I think, that gets lost so many times is that concept of mercy. And yeah, the guy looked on him, and he had mercy on him. And he went and he cared for him and, and he made sure he was okay and provided for him. And that's so beautiful. And, and the guy says, well, the one who showed mercy on him. Jesus says, yes, go and do thou likewise. And you know, that probably aggravated the guy to be told to go be like a Samaritan. But yeah, go be like the Samaritan because this is the way that you're supposed to operate. And, you know, that's really, that was the point of those commandments in the law was to teach that this is what we do is we love we love. And, and that's what the man did. The man loved his neighbor. He loved his neighbor by doing what he could for his neighbor. Not saying where did he come from or anything else, but by doing what he could for his neighbor. And that's what Jesus is teaching to this guy. He says, well, who's my neighbor? He says, well, no, to whom can you be a neighbor? To whom should you be a neighbor? You should be a neighbor to everyone you come into contact with as you have opportunity. The Bible would it would repeatedly tell us that as we have opportunity to let us do good to all men, you know, especially those who are the household of faith, but all kinds of men. We, we don't say, well, what are you before we do good? We just do good because it is right. And, and now there's a very important thing, though, that 
kind of goes underneath this. And that is that this parable is really a gospel parable in many ways. This is a, you know, you know, this expresses to us not only what this man did on this occasion and the teaching that Jesus had for this man on this occasion, but if we kind of look at the if we kind of look at this parable, I think we will see in this parable ourselves and what Jesus has done for us, which I think is an even greater thing to get out of the parable. So we're like the man who we're like the man who fell among thieves, who was wounded and, and lying half dead and had none to help him. You know, and here comes the here comes the priest and here comes the Levite, you know, and they've got nothing for us. But then along comes Jesus. You know, Jesus wasn't a Samaritan, but of course he was accused of being a Samaritan by the Jews. But moreover, he was hated and rejected by the Jews as if he were a Samaritan. But he came along, and when he saw us, he had compassion on us. In fact, I think some of my favorite verses in the New Testament have to do with the compassion of Jesus Christ. I've always loved that scene over Mark 6 when the Lord Jesus, you know, he, he takes his disciples and, he, and they get on a boat and they go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, you know, because, you know, he says, we need, we, we, you know, we're going to go over here to this, you know, to this desert place to be by ourselves. And, you know, you know on, on, on that occasion, Mark tells us that they had not had any leisure, even so much as to eat. They've been so busy. And so he says, let's go take a break. And so they get on the boat and they sail over this, but the people see them leaving and outrun them on the land and are waiting there when they land. And so when Jesus gets off the boat, there's a whole multitude out there. And, and you know, I love on that occasion, Jesus didn't look out there and say, what are y'all doing? We were trying to get away from y'all. He looks out there and he says, and, and the Bible says he had compassion on them because they were his sheep, not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And the other occasions, it says he began to heal them as well. And so uh, I, I love places like that. that talk about the compassion of Jesus because I recognize that I'm in need of his compassion all the time. And I, rec- and I can look back at my life and see his compassion all over my life, not only in redeeming me from my sins, which was the chief, the chief issue I had and the chief help that I needed, but beyond that point, he has had compassion on me every day of my life. And I recognize that I need it. I need it today and I need it tomorrow. And so I rejoice in the mercy and compassion and the love of Jesus Christ. And, and so that's what he did. He, he, he had compassion on us. And so he came to us and he bound up our wounds. We, we're, we're wounded. Not only are we wounded by sin, but we're wounded by many wounds in this life, and, and life is really a survival, <laughs> you know, in many ways. It's a roller coaster in some ways. It's a survival in some ways. You're just surviving and just keep, you know, just keep going, going, and, and boom, you, you know, you, you, get it, you get it kind of another stroke, and you just keep on rolling. You know, that's really the way that it is, and he binds up our wounds, and he cares for us, and then just like with, with, just like with that man, he takes us. He takes us to a place and provides for us. And so I said that Jesus has redeemed us from our sins. And that's the, greatest, that's the greatest need that we had. And that's the greatest help that Jesus has given to us. And if that's where it stopped, you know, if that's where it stopped, we would have cause to just rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Because that's the greatest thing that anyone has ever done is to save sinners from their sins. And that's exactly what Jesus has done on our behalf. But beyond that, 
beyond that. He cares for us in so many ways. He cares for us spiritually. He has provided a place for us. He's given us his gospel. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. And he's, 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 he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That's amazing, you know. What in the world are we doing with the gospel? You know, why should we have such a wonderful message as this, you know? It is the goodness of God towards us, you know. And he's planted churches. He's provided churches which are care places for his people. I think if, if you could pinpoint one place where maybe we've gone wrong in our thinking, that may be maybe the greatest place we've gone wrong is we've forgotten the fact that churches are care places. They're places to serve and care for one another and then reach out in the community and care for those about us. And, and you know, it, it's, it's, the supposit- it's the depository of truth. We know that. It's the pillar and ground of truth. We know that. It's a place where God is worshipped. We know that. But it's also a place of care. It's a place of service and love. And, and, and God has provided that for his people. And, and you know, he, he sort of deposits his little children there, and he says, take care of them. And, and he says, you, you're, you're, you know, whatever you have to spend in doing so is going to be worthwhile because when I come back, I'm going to repay. And I've never thought about that before, but that's an amazing thing. Do you recognize the fact that, 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 that we don't get the recompense here? We're looking for it there. That you can spend to be spent in the service of God because the recompense is coming when he returns, you know, when he calls us into his kingdom. And we get to enjoy that in the fullness of it. And get to rejoice in it, friends. Get to rejoice in the coming of Jesus Christ. How wonderful that is. And so that, that whole idea of, you know, who's my neighbor? No, no. To whom can I be a neighbor today? And friends, that's something, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's important from a practical standpoint. But, 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 but you know, because it, 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 is just a, it just changes the world. It truly does. That's how the world changed. I talked about the gospel going forth. Well, one of the things that really paves the way for the gospel is the love and service of Christians. You know, before Christianity really ascended, you know, to the, you know, the top, so to speak, uh, even, the, you know, even, the, even the pagans that were opposed to it respected the Christians for their love and service. <laughs> you know, they, they won people over with that, friends. And so it's a practical standpoint, but from the standpoint of adorning the gospel, of of preaching the gospel, because it displays the truth of the gospel. It shows outwardly what the Lord has already done towards us, ourselves. It shows that forth in such a powerful way. And, you know, I wonder sometimes, you know, we have to be careful about this. I wonder sometimes if we don't believe grace theoretically in our heads, and not practically in our hearts. We need to believe it theoretically in our heads and practically in our hearts. It needs to come out. The, the, the grace that we've received from Jesus, that we know we've received from Jesus, should come out in all of our interactions. And may the Lord bless us to do that. May us soften our hearts and guide us and bless us to do that. And as we do that, may this show forth the work of Jesus and what he has done towards us. And, and really... You know, again, open up the way for the preaching of the gospel and, 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 and the glory and the honoring of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for listening to today's message. 
and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.